You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. There seems to be a perception among Christians that Lutherans are somehow against holy living or against good works. And yet in the Catechism, we confess that we ask God's name to be holy among us and that this takes place when the Word of God is taught in its truth and purity and we as children of God lead holy lives according to God's Word. God says, be holy, be perfect, as I, the Lord your God, am holy and perfect. But does he really mean it? Stay tuned for Equipping the Saints with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Equipping the Saints. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Noah Kirstein. We serve the Saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thanks for tuning in. We are working our way through the book of James. We ended at James 1, verse 12, one of the uh, all-time great verses in the book of James. Uh, One of my favorites. I've preached on it uh, numerous times, especially for funerals. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I think a case could be made that that is the uh, key verse, uh, interpretive verse for the entire epistle of James. And uh, in this episode, episode 49, uh, we're going to be continuing on. We're going to look at uh, the topic of temptation, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18 of James chapter 1. Before we uh, dig into that text, uh, I need to make one... um, correction from last uh, the last episode. Um, I was uh, speaking off the top of my head. I said that our current pope is from Venezuela. Uh, he's from Argentina, not from Venezuela. I knew it as soon as I said it and uh, did not mean to offend anybody by that uh, slip of the tongue, so I just wanted to uh, get that out there. And uh, also, I want to uh, share a, a feedback from one of our listeners, Pastor uh, David Ernst, who's a uh, missionary pastor in Venezuela, Um, and I I don't know how to pronounce uh, the place where he's at, B-A-R-I-N-A-S, Barinas, hopefully I didn't butcher that too badly, but um, Pastor Ernst is a faithful listener and uh, supporter of uh, our KNNA theological programming. And uh, we touched on the topic of liberation theology in our last uh, episode, and he had a comment that I, uh, I want to share with you. He said, uh, Pastor Poppy, liberation theology was initially promoted in the late 60s and the 70s by liberal Roman Catholic priests, primarily in Brazil, but also in Peru and El Salvador. It found fertile soil in Latin America where the gap between the haves and the have-nots perhaps is greater than anyone at, anywhere else in the world. At first, it was a voluntary, non-violent movement, but the rhetoric of liberation theology soon was adopted by socialist parties to justify the Marxist economic program, 
expropriation and nationalization of industries and forced redistribution of wealth by the state as the practical application of the Lord's teaching on wealth and poverty. From the 1980s through the early 2000s, John Paul II and later Benedict XVI attempted to curb the Marxist tendencies of liberation theology through public reprimands and the appointment of more conservative archbishops and cardinals. One of these was Jorge Urosa, formerly the archbishop of the Diocese of Caracas, and as a cardinal, the highest-ranking Roman priest prelate in Venezuela. He made a strong and eloquent stand against liberation theology. Unfortunately, Cardinal Yorosa fell victim to COVID-19 in 2021, and no comparable voice has emerged with the Roman Church in Venezuela. The irony is that today, the most fervent supporters of liberation theology in Venezuela are not liberal priests, but evangelicals. Here, evangelical is synonymous with neo-Pentecostal charismatic uh, theology. Liberation theology actually meshes well with the prosperity gospel. About 14% of Venezuelans identify as evangelical. Uh, I thought that was uh, very good and very helpful and very insightful with regard to some of the context and uh, history of liberation theology. And I want to thank Pastor Ernst for uh, taking the time to uh, send us that note. Pastor, uh, any any other comments that you want to make with regard to uh, that particular topic before we move on? No, I think we're ready to hop into James. Okay, um, James 1, 13 through 18. And uh, I know some, if you're uh, following along in your English Bible, uh, some have the paragraph break at verse 12. We covered that last episode and why we covered uh, verse 12 with the previous section. Uh, we're, we're looking at temptation in this uh, upcoming section. And um, as, if, as if we needed a primer on this, uh, James is going to teach us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how temptation works. Vicar, you want to share those verses, please? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, once again, uh, James does a marvelous job of uh, weaving other parts of Scripture, uh, weaving... Um, echoes of scripture and scriptural images together. You, uh, you can't read a section like that in James without thinking of uh, numerous other places in scripture. Um, Pastor Moline um, recently preached a sermon uh, 
that uh, the mantra all the way through the sermon, and I mean that in a good way, is that God tempts no one. God tempts no one. That was his uh, uh, echo all the way through that sermon, and uh, I would uh, encourage you to check that out on uh, Pastor Moline's uh, podcast page. Uh, remind me of the title of that again, Pastor. I understand how you forget it. It comes from the Book of Concord. That's uh, <laughs> called With Intrepid Hearts Sermons. So, With Intrepid Hearts, and it was his sermon for the first Sunday in Lent. Um, with Intrepid Hearts, that's where uh, Pastor Moline's uh, sermons are archived. And uh, while, I, uh, while I do warmly uh, embrace and confess the entire Book of Concord. <laughs> I know, I'm teasing uh, you. <laughs> one, one little phrase out of context, uh, for some reason that always skips uh, my uh, long-term memory. So thank you for that. And thank you for that sermon. It was very, very well done. Yeah, and I think um, since we were talking about that particular topic, this is great because um, that phrase is used in the small catechism, uh, specifically in the section on the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Um, And Luther says, God tempts no one, and he's quoting the book of James. And so for those who say it's a, you know, Luther didn't like James, he thought it was a straw epistle, which he, he wrote that, he also quoted it in the small catechism. So there you go. Uh, there you go, the, uh, that, uh, that double-minded Luther. Huh? There, there you go. <laughs> well, we, uh, we've spent most of our time talking about trials, and I think in uh, the English vernacular, uh, we often put trials and temptations together, whether that's done uh, poetically or musically. Um, people usually think of trials and temptations together. And James separates the two, and he moves now from trials that a Christian faces to temptations. And I think this is a a really, really good move. Um, The idea is that trial tests us so we can find out if our faith, um, our, yeah, I guess faith is the way to say it, is, uh, is genuine. Um, pastor, the, uh, the word, and I didn't bring my reading glasses with me, um, pi, pi radzamenas. Yeah. Okay. In verse 13. Yes. Verse 13. Pi radzian, Okay. Um, this, uh, according to Lenski, this is a, a very, very key word. And it is uh, not just any kind of a temptation, but a temptation toward evil. Um, it is, uh, it is according according to Lenski, a solicitation. Uh, solicita- you know, you uh, you come to the door. And uh, we've got a couple of our shut-ins that have signs on the door that say, uh, no solicitors, no solicitors. And, uh, you know, I thought about that as I was uh, reading through this section in Lenski on James 1, that um, that's basically what James is encouraging the Christian to do, to put up a no solicitor sign with regard to temptation. Is that uh, is that a crazy way to look at that, Pastor? Uh 
No, I mean, um, I, we, we don't want to fall into temptation. And this word, uh, perazzo, uh, is the same word that's used in the Lord's Prayer when it says, lead us not into temptation. And so we're constantly, in a sense, putting up that sign when we pray and ask God not uh, to allow us to be falling into temptation, that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature would not allow us to fall from the Christian faith. And we do that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. And so while, you know, maybe it's not a sign, you know, we don't have a t-shirt that says, lead us not into temptation or anything like that. In our prayers, we're asking that God would do that very thing. The uh, trials that we often endure in uh, in this life, um, these trials, oh, oftentimes lead us into temptation, and I think that's why it's so masterful here in James that he freely flows from <coughs> trials into temptation. Pastor, um, we're we're running out of time quickly in this segment. Why is it important for us to know, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tests no one. Why is it important for us to be constantly reminded that temptations do not come from God? Uh, Well... In our sinful nature, it's very easy for us to want God to be the one who's guilty for it so that we can take the blame off of our own shoulders and Aha, put it on him. It's the blame so game. Uh, we are experts, and all of us have uh, doctorate degrees in self-justification, and this is one of the methods. All right. We, uh, we'll be right back equipping the saints. James 1, 13 and following. Don't change that dial. K-N-N-A-L-P 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska Welcome back to Equipping the Saints, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Kirstein. We serve the Saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thanks for tuning in to our Bible study on the book of James. Um, we are in James chapter 1. We're in verse 13. We're looking at temptation. Uh, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil or with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Uh, as we were going into the break, we were uh, really just getting into this verse. And um, we were talking about how people, uh, Christians as well, um, this isn't uh, confined to those outside the faith, we like to play the blame game. And, uh, Vicar, you made, uh, you made the comment uh about the Garden of Eden or the very beginning or whatever. Uh, uh, Refresh our memory with regard to the blame game in uh, Genesis chapter 3. Well, Adam says, Lord, it was the woman that you gave me. And the woman says, Lord, it was that snake that you put in the garden. So they're always passing the buck. 
So ultimately, um, let's follow this chain of progression here. Adam blamed Eve. And God. Eve blamed the serpent. And God. You, you just couldn't wait, could you? You just had to jump in. They were ultimately blaming God. How, Pastor? Well, I mean, they, they say it directly. <laughs> uh, the woman you gave me, God, caused this terrible thing to happen. Um, and, and, who, and who created the serpent? Right, and right. And, God, and so... Uh, we do the same exact thing, right? That's the beauty of Genesis chapter 3 is that it actually is uh, us all the time, right? It's not my fault um, I stole this pen from the bank. They put it out there and I grabbed it. It's not my fault that I sped, you know, I didn't know how fast I was going. It's not my fault. I have these feelings. God made me this way, right? That's one that we hear a lot right now. Um, We pass the blame on to God all the time. And when we do so and take away our sin, we take away our need for our Savior and remove ourselves ultimately from Jesus. You, uh, you've mentioned the Lord's Prayer, Pastor. Uh, Lenski on page 541 says this. Um, In the Lord's Prayer, we ask God so to lead us by his providence as to keep us out of temptation that is too strong for us and to strengthen us in the temptation we do have to face. 1 Corinthians 10.13 indicates how God answers this petition. When God sent Jesus to be tempted by Satan, and when he now lets Satan tempt us, we should not blame God, but should remember that God's own spirit helped Jesus to crush Satan, and that he now helps us to vanquish him. Thus, we are to be made more and more proof against temptation. But there is another side to temptation, which verse 14 points out, there lies the real danger. Now, before we get into four, verse 14 and what uh, uh, Lansky calls the real danger, um, your thoughts on this Lord's Prayer temptation and that we are praying this constantly to be reminded how Christ has overcome temptation for us. Right. I, I mean... Um, I, that's exactly the truth, and that's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer all the time. We uh, remember that Christ has overcome sin, death, and the power of the devil, and that those things ultimately have no power over us. And um, in, in that way, we're asking God to keep us from the temptations of this world, mainly that we might not make those things into our God, but rather we'll let God continue to be our true God. In uh, Thank you. In verse 13, um, we read, For God cannot be tempted with evil. That seems kind of an odd phrase. And um, the Greek for that, and again, I wish I would have uh, brought my reading glasses here. Apai rotos. Epirastas de peradzetai hupotes hidias epithumias. Thank you. Um, he is untemptable as regarding to things base. That's how Lenski literally translates that phrase. Vicar is nodding his uh, glowing red head. Um, and uh, I think this is an important thing for us to uh, 
to park the car at for just a little bit. Um, we don't think about sin. We kind of generalize sin, and we lump all sin together. We don't talk about things that are base, and that is that uh, caca word. Am I uh, am I reading that right? Caca, cacon, yeah, is the word. Yeah. I think I skipped a line when I was reading it earlier. So. Okay, but uh, you know, I I keep I keep thinking back to uh, a kids program my um, my uh, kids used to watch years and years ago, and uh, when uh, someone had a messy diaper, they would say "doo uh, doo caca poo poo," and uh, you know we got that caca in there, and we're talking, and and that's a good word picture if I'm understanding this correctly, caca. Uh, are things that are morally base and degrading. Um, and God is always warning us against moral baseness. Now, Vicar, um, when you hear that phrase, moral baseness, what comes to mind? Anything? I think part of this word, too, involves... You know, that baseness, it's worthless. It's useless. There is no good in it. It is totally bad. There is nothing profitable that comes with this kind of evil that James is speaking of here. So moral baseness, it's not edifying. There is no profitability in it. It is only ever bad. Okay. And as you as you were giving that description, I'm thinking about, all kinds of things that are really, really popular in our present culture that would be that would fit under this definition of moral baseness. Um, we have uh, sexual immorality of every kind that is uh, not only tolerated but is uh, paraded around and promoted. We have all sorts of evil baseness that is available on the internet or through social media, uh, including but not limited to pornography. We have um, all kinds of moral baseness with the way people talk. And uh, it's really, really hard to, uh, for a Christian to listen to music or to go to a movie or even read a book that doesn't include uh, the celebration of moral baseness. And uh, I, I really think that uh, as preachers, we need to do uh, an even better job of bringing this out, that there are things that are absolutely unprofitable for you. Um, and it's even worse than that, Pastor, because it's not only that they're unprofitable, they destroy the soul. That's the real problem, isn't it? And uh, I think <clears throat> I'm going to say something maybe controversial. Sometimes we get so bogged down into the little details of the things happening that we lose sight of the big issue that's behind it all, which is the lack of faith uh, in Christ that leads to all these things. You know what I mean? Um, walking into the library and seeing the terrible books that they have out advertising, you know, um, or the the specialty reading hours that they have advertised, you lose sight 
of the issue that's really behind it that we have abandoned God's word as a uh, means of truth and uh, righteousness and uh, have started applying our own reason to these things and that's the lack of faith that's behind it and we need to see that and repent of the bigger things and not just get caught up fighting all the little things that are tentacles coming out of the actual issue. I'm thinking now about, uh, based on what you and Vicar said, I'm thinking about Joseph um, from uh, Genesis, and I'm thinking about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And Joseph is ruddy and handsome. He probably has uh, neatly trimmed red hair and a neatly trimmed red beard, uh, just like our Vicar. And uh, Potiphar's wife is uh, lusting after him. And is constantly enticing him to uh, commit adultery with her. And Joseph says, how can I do this big sin against God? Now, he could have said, hey, Potiphar's been great to me. I, I can't betray him. But Joseph takes that next step. How can I do this great sin against God? Pastor, isn't that what you're talking about here with regard to this faith issue? Yeah, and uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I want to say it's Hydra, right? Is that the Greek myth where there's the serpent and you cut off its head and it grows two back in its place? That's kind of what we end up doing here in our world uh, as we fight all these things and we don't actually deal with the real terror that's behind it all and uh, that's what we need to do joseph is a great example of that right it's the same thing he addresses where the real issue is and i think as we as christians deal with social issues that's what we need to do we need to go uh, back to repenting return to god's word proclaim it in its truth and purity and believe that word by the work of the holy spirit we have the same spirit indwelling in us that helped jesus in his temptation and Jesus in his temptation relied on the Word of God and when these temptations come we have not only a great example <coughs> in Jesus on how to overcome temptation but we have the same power we have that same Holy Spirit indwelling us but Lenski points out we got a bigger problem God doesn't tempt us God is not the one who has anything to do with this moral baseness. Take a look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And uh, I want to I translate that word desire as lust. Is that a, uh, is that a fair is that a fair way or an accurate way to look at that? Vicar, you're kind of nodding your head up and down. Is that... Is that uh, I'd say that's fair. And lust then isn't specifically referring to any sixth commandment issue. No. Just our general lusts for the things of the world, for sinful things that are harmful to us. And I think that's part of the problem. Generally, when we talk about lust, uh, we almost always confine that to the sixth commandment. And... <laughs> <laughs> don't don't get me wrong. The sixth commandment is taking a tremendous beating in uh, in our culture and in our world today, and in our churches and from our pulpits. And everybody is tempted in this way. But lust is bigger 
than just a sexual temptation. It is all the things that we lust after in this world. We lust after pride. We lust after wealth. We lust after power. We lust after prestige. We lust after a long life. Uh, and we'll do anything in our power to achieve the completion of those lusts, which we think will satisfy us. But, uh, as uh, Mick Jagger sang, uh, no matter how many lusts you try to fulfill, you ain't going to get no satisfaction. It just is not there. We're out of time. We've got to take a break. We'll be back and continue our look at James 1, verse 14. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Equipping the Saints. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Kirstein. We serve the Saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship every Sunday morning at 8 and 1030 with Bible study and Sunday school for all ages in between. Wednesday evening year-round at 6.30 p.m. Uh, during uh, Holy Week and uh, the Lenten season, we have extra services. So check out our website. Uh, we hope hope that you will uh, come and hear and receive the gifts of God. We are in uh, James chapter 1, and uh, we've been looking at 14. We want to look at 14 and 15 together. Do you want to read those two verses, Vicar? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Pastor, we have a, a very, very natural uh, example. You know, um, people get pregnant and give birth to a baby. And James here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this uh, very, very well-known um, example, how, how the world works, how life begins and is continued, and he uses it in a uh, drastic and uh, negative way. Uh, explain that for us, will you? How, how does this work? Well, um, explain how, how this particular... This progression here in... Uh, yeah, you don't need to tell me about the birds and the bees. Okay, good. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear that. The progression, <laughs> the natural progression here in verses 14 and 15. Well, I think that's the, the key thing is the natural progression, right? Uh, you have the desire and... Uh, it it leads into conception, which gives birth uh, to sin, and then finally brings about death. Right? It's a it's a progression, a slippery slope that you go down, and um, every level that you go down becomes more difficult and dangerous. And it has to do. Maybe this is the way to think about it. If sin always looked terrible, no one would fall into it. But little tiny things creep in that seem to be not as big a deal, but they grow and they grow and they incubate and, until finally you have this terrible problem. You know, maybe like the movie Alien, right? Uh, a little tiny wound or bite 
leads to this thing growing within you that finally shoots out and leads to your death, right? That's the sort of terrible thing that's happening. And uh, what kind of death are we talking about here? I thought we were all going to die. Well, we all are going to die unless Christ returns first, but the death that we're speaking here is uh, eternal death, complete separation from God and his ways, uh, or um, hell. You know, that sort of death is the sort of death we're talking about, spiritual death. Vicar, you uh, commented before on this uh, pregnancy image, giving birth kind of a thing. Uh, Where were were you uh, thinking with regard to um, that particular verse? Well, with regard to the giving birth imagery, uh, I prefer how the King James renders it. Um, It bringeth, uh, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death, using the bringeth forth instead of birth, because while birth can be a good illustration, birth is like a good and holy thing from the Lord. So it's oh, just a, I see, I a see preference there. I see where I bringeth see where forth going. versus give birth. Okay, I uh, I I follow I follow your uh, your reasoning there. Um, and uh, for a while there, I thought you were going to be a King James only kind of a guy, but uh, I am a little bit. There there uh, there is much to be said about uh, that particular translation, especially when you're uh, dealing with a word that can be translated different ways. Uh, Sometimes it's uh, helpful to check out the Strong's Concordance on the King James uh, because it can uh, <coughs> be very, very fruitful. There is a, um, a contemporary of C.F.W. Walther. He was in the General Synod uh, in the um, <clears throat> English-speaking Lutheran Church. And uh, the uh, Charles, w. Char- Charles Porterfield Krauth is his name, and a brilliant theologian, uh, is not as well known in the Missouri Synod as he could be, but he's got a famous, famous um, commentary, I suppose is the best way to say it, um, with regard to the progression of error in the church. And this, uh, his words on the progression of error in the church, I think, uh, fit in well here because they are applicable, applicable not only to error in the church, but every sin. And uh, here's what Kraut says. When error is admitted into the church, it will be found that the stages of its progress are always three. It begins by asking toleration. Its friends say to the majority, you need not be afraid of us. We are few and weak. Just let us alone. We shall not disturb the faith of the others. The church has her standards of doctrine, and of course we shall never interfere with them. We only ask for ourselves that we be spared from interference with our private opinions. Indulged in this for a time, error goes on to assert equal rights. Truth and error become two balancing forces. The church is permitted to do nothing, which looks like deciding between them. That would be partiality. It is considered bigotry to assert any superior right for the truth. We are to agree to differ, and any favoring of the truth, because it is truth, is partisanship. Any points of doctrine that the friends of truth and error hold in common are to be considered fundamental doctrines, and any point of doctrine on which they differ are effectively set aside by being labeled as non-essential doctrines. 
If anybody objects to such a watering down of the truth, he is labeled a disturber of the peace of the church. At this point, truth and error have become two coordinate powers, and the goal of church officers is to be skillful in diplomacy, preserving the balance between them. From this point, error soon goes to its natural end, which is to assert supremacy. The adherents of truth began by tolerating errors, and then they themselves have come to be merely tolerated, but only for a time. Error henceforth claims a preference for its judgments on all disputed points. Men are placed into positions of authority, not, as at first, in spite of their departure from the biblical truth, but because of it. They are rewarded for repudiating the doctrines of the faith and are given positions from which they can teach others to repudiate them and help make them skillful in combating them. Pastor, um, do you think that's relative to the discussion that we're talking about here, this natural progression of sin? Yeah, and I think we see it in our own church. We see it in our own um, church body. We see it in lots of other church bodies. You know, when you look there, we're all in different places on this uh, uh, continuum, if you will. And I think that's why... For us as Christians, the first thing we always need to be doing is repenting and allowing God's Word to correct us. Because if we return to God's Word, then we avoid those errors. I would, uh, and, I, and I love Krauth, um, the conservative Reformation and its theology is an all-time Lutheran classic, and I would encourage you to uh, get a copy. I'm sure your pastor will have a copy. It, uh, it may be available in the public domain uh, online, but I know you can order a copy uh, easily. And uh, I would encourage you to read it. It is a uh, large tome. That's where uh, one of the places where this particular quote is from with Krauth. But he is a uh, hero of the faith. And as much as I love him, I would say that uh, he missed one point. Because there is a fourth stage of error. There is a fourth stage of sin. Uh, as Krauth correctly pointed out, error, sin, is never content with uh, being an equal with the truth. It must claim supremacy. And what we are seeing in our world today is a fourth stage, and this fourth stage is celebration. Celebration. It is not enough for you to tol tolerate my error or to tolerate my wickedness, my debauchery. You must celebrate it. And if you don't celebrate it, then you are evil. That is what's going on in our world today, and this is the natural progression of sin, error, this, uh, this evil baseness that, uh, quite frankly, lives in each one of us because of our old Adam. And uh, that's why it needs to be constantly, daily, put to death. Uh, small Catechism Part 4, what does such baptizing with water signify? It signifies that the old Adam must daily die and drown with all of its sin and evil passion, its evil lust, and emerge a new person, a new man. Uh, this has to happen every day. Otherwise, we are going to, we are, it is possible for us to uh, fall prey to the temptation that surrounds us. Vicar, you had a um, fishing 
illustration that you wanted to share based on uh, this uh, particular section in James. I thought it was particularly good. Well, you can't help but see it with that word lured there in verse 14. Uh, The evil, which we discussed earlier, that moral baseness, the thing that is no good, is also the thing that we are attracted to in the same way that a fish is attracted to a little spinner in the water. It's made of metal. It catches the sun. It looks good, but it provides no nourishment for the fish. It doesn't sustain the fish, but yet the fish goes out there and grabs it, bites onto it, gets hooked, and then is in a whole world of trouble. Uh, and then uh, becomes a filet au soul uh, for the uh, uh Friday evening uh, fish fry. The devil's fish fry, yeah. (laughs) The devil's fish fry. Very good, very good. Um, We're seeing this natural progression here of what happens to sin. And when we are tempted, uh, we're not thinking about ending up in hell. We're thinking about the instant gratification. We're thinking about the short-term thing. Pastor, you did a marvelous job of bringing out how how we fail to see the big picture so often um, with regard to our faith and the kind of things that we're talking about here and being connected to God's word, being connected to the church, uh, being filled with Christ's body and blood in the supper. These are the means by which God strengthens our faith and gives us uh, the Holy Spirit so that we can see these temptations for what they are, lures of Satan the world, and our own sinful flesh to drag us to the pit of hell. Yeah, and go back to using that um, ancient Greek uh, myth, Hydra, right? Uh, The way that Hercules finally defeated him was uh, every time he cut off a head, he cauterized the wound so that a new head would not grow out of it uh, and leaving only the real issue behind it. And maybe that's what we need to do as well. Thank you. We, uh, We have another natural progression coming and uh, we're going to cover verses 16 17 and 18 uh, in our last segment and i want to share those with you before we go into break do not be deceived my beloved brothers every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Uh, a marvelous, marvelous um, opposition progression, a positive progression that God has in store for each of us. We'll look at those verses when we come back. You are listening to KNNA. LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Equipping the Saints, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Noah Kirstein. We serve the Saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. You can find this episode 49 and uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours of uh, other uh, religious programming, Bible studies, uh, 
sermon studies and the like at uh, our spot where we uh, host our podcast, KNNA Theological Programming. That's KNNA Theological Programming. Scroll down the list, find the programs that you like, uh, and uh, we appreciate your feedback. And uh, it's a, a great joy and a great pleasure to be able to uh, share the Word of God with you in this way. We're looking at the book of James. We're in James chapter 1, and we're going to take three verses here together in this closing section. It's a paragraph in most of your English translations. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I think uh, in that verse 16, Pastor, that deception that uh, James is talking about is the deception that Satan gives us that we should blame God for our temptations and blame God when our temptations take us in places we don't really want to go. Am I following James' uh, uh, train of thought there? Yeah, I, th- I think the word uh, here is um, planao, which has this idea of uh, being led, right? Uh, wandering away uh, as you're being led. And so it's definitely not giving in to the temptations that we've been speaking about above. Um, don't fall into the temptation and thus be led astray. Every good and perfect <clears throat> gift is from above. Um, how inclusive are we to be with that pastor? Um, you know, certainly we want to talk about the, the gift of faith, the gift of Jesus, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of salvation. Um, do we take that to be the, the gift of marriage, the gift of children, the, uh, gift of joyfulness, uh, that arrives from, uh, faithfully living out my vocation, um, it, it seems pretty all-inclusive here. It, it does, and I think, um, I think we have to think primarily with this about Jesus, right? That he is that good gift that was above and has descended down here to us. Um, I think that's first and foremost. Um, by extension, then, uh, if we're to look at it in terms of the creed, obviously the things that God has created here in the world for our benefit are good gifts. He says so himself when he creates them. Um, but if we're merely talking about those things that have now been corrupted by sin, I think we're missing the main point of Christ being that good gift. Marriage is a good gift from God. Sin has... Um, caused it to be not as good as it was, and there are ways to be led into deception or be deceived or wandering in marriage. And the only one that's left that can clarify all those other good gifts is Christ, who then puts these things in their right place again. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. Uh, And, you know, when, when we are deceived and think that temptation comes from God, that's bad. When we are deceived and think that temptation and the allure, the the bait that uh, Satan is dangling in front of us (laughs) is going to have a good end, uh, 
that's a major deception as well. So we've got all of this kind of kind of playing out here. It, uh, and in the Greek, there's the structure kind of lays it out in parallel, right? So all gifts are good, and that's parallel to all uh, good completed things from above, right? And so you have this, and it, I think the way it's written is what indicates it's probably Christ first and foremost. Okay. Uh, and I think there are some critics of James that look at the way that this is constructed and say that James didn't write this because, you know, he was just a ordinary um, guy and uh, the Greek construction is too... Uh, too fancy or too perfect or whatever, and uh, we can we can laugh at those kind of suggestions. Uh, the ESV says the Father of Lights, the Father of Lights. Um, that makes me think of creation. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, uh, the Father of the sun, the moon, and the stars, the one who has created all things. And uh, am I, uh, before I ask my next question, Pastor, um, is that where I'm supposed to be going when I hear Father of Lights? I think that's uh, exactly where you're supposed to go. I think then, too, um, when you, you say sun and moon and stars, um, we also have in there the the angels and things like that are included in this, and he's the God who has made those. Um, and so we have a whole lot of baggage that comes with that. So that that's what makes me want to think of the first article gifts, because creation is specifically addressed here. The, the first article gifts that um, so often we take for granted, we don't see as gifts from God. And now in this present age, you know, I think at the at the time of the Reformation, it was the uh, second article of the creed that was under attack. And uh, in the time, um, oh, in the 200 years, 300 years following the Reformation, uh, it has been the third article of the creed that has been under attack. Uh, you know, I can make a decision for Jesus and uh, all of this uh, nonsense. And it seems like now it's the first article gifts that are being attacked. Um, am I a man? Maybe, maybe there's a woman hidden inside of me. Uh, maybe, um, maybe God uh, didn't make all things equal, so I've got to equalize and, and come up with my own kind of equity to uh, clean up God's uh, corrupt design for things. You see where I'm going with this? Um, the, the first, and I'm not saying that the second and the third article aren't under attack still today. They are. But it seems like Satan has a special focus on first article gifts right now, things that we have always taken for granted that now all of a sudden uh, people are questioning and uh, wondering uh, if there is a God, why God did this or why God made a mistake. Vicar, what are your thoughts on that? We definitely see all kinds of first article gifts under attack in our world today. I mean, even... Even the fact that we have the gift of writing and language and we have God's Word translated for us in the English, and yet so often we just ignore that or take it for granted. It wasn't always the case that we had such high literacy rates, that we had such easy access to God's Word, but here we are putting it off, ignoring it, taking for granted these good gifts that God has given to us. 
Amen. Amen. Sometimes I'm able to see more stars than other times. Sometimes the sun shines a little brighter uh, because of cloud cover or lack thereof. Um, you know, these things have variation, at least from the human eye. And yet, God is not like that. God does not change. James talks here what, what we would generally categorize as the immutability of God, the changelessness of God. Pastor, why is it important in this particular topic where we're talking about the gifts that come from God, the, um, the natural progression of the faith, why is it so important to emphasize the changelessness of God? Well, take the example you used earlier that maybe there's a woman living inside of you, right? Um, for... The yeah, for the history of the church, 1,900 years um, since Christ, and even before that, um, the church has been very clear on this because of what God's Word says. But now, um, Christians, uh, say, I use that word loosely in that term, Christians say, well, that was the old way of thinking, and here's the new thing. God has changed, uh, is what they're saying. And that's the argument that's behind a lot of what they say. But if that's true, then that changes the definition of who God is. And we also then need to be really alarmed about what if God's mind changes again in the future? After we've been in heaven for a thousand years, maybe he'll get tired of us and send us down to hell or, you know, vaporize us and we'll be done. God is unchangeable. That is clear. And that means the theology and the doctrine and the practice is uniform throughout the history of the church. And uh, when we start to bring in these new things, the problem is actually not with God. It's with us changing, not him. There are many warnings about adding to or subtracting from the word of God in Scripture. Um, it is clear, it is sufficient, and it is life. That last verse, Pastor, verse 18, of his own will, he, the Father of lights, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Pastor, the fact that God willed to bring us forth by the word of truth. Yeah. What is he talking about? Well, this is the, uh, it brings to a close the section that began in verse 15. It is a parallel to that where uh, the desire and, and all that had brought forth sin, which brought forth death. Uh, but for us, that's not what God wished, and it's not what he has accomplished in us. Instead, we, he is brought forth through the word of God in us that we might be the first fruits. And that word makes us think again, you know, of St. Paul's uh, or uh, writings, First uh, Corinthians 15, or even first fruits from death, right? Um, we now are the best and the first of the people saved by God, the creation that he has made, and that's the good news for us. So we're not only talking about the fact that God has given us life, first article. We are talking about the fact that we are reborn in Christ Jesus by the power of the word of God. We are baptized. We have been uh, recreated, so to speak. Yes, and uh, I think that is extremely important. In what way, Vicar, are Christians a first fruits? Because we have every good gift from God, which is what James had just said. We have been recreated. We've been given new desires. The Holy Spirit in us works within us to do 
and produce good works. And these are not um, complete in the total sense in that we are not quite to the resurrection of the dead yet and that we have not been given our full glorified bodies and that we are not um, we have not reached the full completion of what God has planned for us. Even as we are now, we are still the best and the first fruits of God. But this is still just a taste of the good things that God has for us in the end. As a, as a uh, Christian, we are born again. We are, uh, just by our very existence as Christians, we are God's possession, and we are a first fruit to the whole world in that respect. And then as we live our Christian life, and the fruits of the Spirit flow from us, again, gifts from God, um, the world sees, and the world either questions, rejoices, or is attracted to it. Maybe a different kind of lure. And I think... Using this word first fruits, uh, James, the pastor at Jerusalem, where the temple was, um, the first fruits are the things that are brought in every year and given to God. And that's us then. Through the word of God, we're now given to God. We belong to him. Uh, and this is opposed to those others who don't have the word of God and are not first fruits given to God, not brought to the temple or into the presence of God. And as God's possessions, we are safe and secure in the loving arms of a gift-giving God, the greatest gift of all, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks for tuning in. Equipping the Saints, we'll be back again soon. God's blessings in Christ. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.